You're listening to a podcast from Reality Honolulu. For more information or ways to get involved in the life of the church, visit realityhonolulu.com. Thanks for listening. Welcome, good to be with you guys as always to fellowship and dig into the word of the Lord. Um, Why don't you turn with me to Mark chapter 14. We are moving right along in the book of Mark and if you haven't been with us, we've been doing this systematically since the church started uh, in October. So about 10 months we've been in the book of Mark just taking our time and um, just digging in and figuring out What does this mean? What does God's word mean for the original audience that it was written to 2,000 years ago in Israel? And how does it apply to our own life? And um, we're we're about less than two months away from finishing the gospel of Mark. So it's that bittersweet, like it's been so good. Um, But I'm excited for what the Lord has uh, coming. We will be jumping into a new book of the Bible right after. I'll leave you hanging though. I'll tell you very shortly what that will be. Um, But before that happens, The very end, this tail end of Mark, we're probably going to do a bit larger chunks of text than normal. Um, Sometimes we go at a snail's pace, sometimes like last week, which doesn't really happen. We went through a whole chapter, all of chapter 13 last week. Um, But due to the nature of what is happening, right, the, the arrest and trial of Jesus, the Garden of Gethsemane, him being tortured and mocked and scourged, the cross, the resurrection... Just by nature of the the narratives that are telling these stories, our text will be a little bit longer. Um, But today, we are going through Mark 14, 1 through 26. And so, if you have a Bible, open there. And uh, I'm reading out of the New Living Translation. Uh, It's up on the PowerPoint if you don't have that, or you can share with someone next to you. But let's dig in. Uh, Mark 14, verses 1 through 26 says this. It was now two days before Passover and the festival of unleavened bread. The leading priests and the teachers of the religious law were still looking for an opportunity to capture Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the Passover celebration, they agreed, for the people may riot. Meanwhile, Jesus was in Bethany at the home of Simon, a man who had previously had leprosy. While he was eating, a woman came in with a a beautiful alabaster jar of expensive perfume made from uh, the essence of nard. She broke open the jar and poured the perfume over his head. Some of those at the table were indignant. Why waste such expensive perfume, they asked. It could have been sold for a year's wages and the money could have been given to the poor. So they scolded her harshly. But Jesus replied, leave her alone. Why criticize her for doing such a good thing to me? You will always have the poor among you, and you can help them whenever you want to, but you will not always have me. She has done what she said and has anointed uh, my body for the burial ahead of time. I tell you the truth, wherever the good news is preached throughout the whole world, this woman's deed will be remembered and discussed. Verse 10. Then Judas Iscariot One of the 12 disciples went to the leading priest to arrange to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted when they heard why he had come, and they promised to give him money. So he began looking for an opportunity to betray Jesus. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, when the Passover lamb is sacrificed, Jesus' disciples asked him, where do you want us to go to prepare the Passover meal for you? So Jesus sent two of them into Jerusalem with these instructions. 
As you go into the city, a man carrying a pitcher of water will meet you. Follow him. As he enters, as, as, excuse me, at the house he enters, say to the owner, the teacher asks, where is the guest room where I can eat the Passover meal with my disciples? He will take you upstairs to a large room that is already set up. That is where you should prepare our meal. So the disciples went to the city and found everything just as Jesus had said, and they prepared the Passover meal there. In the evening, Jesus arrived with the twelve. As they were at the table eating, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, one of you eating with me here will betray me. Greatly distressed, each one of them asked in turn, am I the one? He replied, it is one of you twelve who is eating from this bowl with me. For the Son of Man must die, as the Scripture declared long ago, but how terrible it will be for the one who betrays him. It will be far better for that man if he had never been born. As they were eating, Jesus took some of the bread, and he blessed it, and he broke it in pieces, and he gave it to the disciples, saying, Take it, for this is my body. And he took a cup of wine, and he gave thanks to God for it, and he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. And he said to them, This is my blood which confirms the covenant between God and his people. It is poured out as a sacrifice for many. I tell you the truth, I will not drink wine again until the day I drink it in the new, uh, it new in the kingdom of God. Then they sang a hymn and went out to the Mount of Olives. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this text that you have us in this morning. We thank you, Lord, that you desire to speak to us through it. You desire to, to explain it to us. And Holy Spirit, we ask that you would, you would do that. That you would use me as your mouthpiece to communicate these truths. That you would give us great understanding of not only what they mean, but how they apply to us. And so God, would you help us this morning? Holy Spirit, we, we say yes and amen to all that you want to do. We want to be a people that are changed by the Spirit of God into the image of Christ. And so, God, I pr we just say that this is about you today, that you're on the throne, that you're King Jesus, that you are the Passover lamb that took away the sins of the world, and that's why we gather. We love you, Lord, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so if you've been with us, you remember what's happening in Jerusalem at the time. If you're not, I'll quickly catch you up. At the time in Jerusalem is the week of Passover. This is one of the holiest and most important celebrations for the Jews. They would, they would travel they would, from near and far, from all over to Jerusalem during this week. And it was symbolic to remembering what God had done to their ancestors when they were freed from slavery in Egypt from Pharaoh. And this was a time where they gathered as a people of God to remember and recall and worship God for who he is and what he had done. But there was a lot of tension going on at this point, specifically with the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin were these group of people made up of the, the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the scribes. And if you're familiar with the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, these are the guys that are always confronting Jesus. If there's any argument 
Most likely, it's between Jesus and these guys, and they're always trying to find fault in him. They're trying to prove him wrong. They're trying to discredit Christ because they see Jesus as a threat. Most of them do not see him as the promised Messiah, not the king, not the God-man that he's claiming to be, that many people are believing him to be. And so tension has come to an all-time high. It's at a pinnacle in the city of Jerusalem, and they want to kill Jesus. That's That's... There's no um, (laughs) symbolism to that. They want to take him out. They want to find any way they can. And over the last chapter or two, we've seen these discussions, this this tension, these arguments, um, and this this anger, if, if I could say that, this malice is growing. And even in the first few verses of our text today, it kind of sets the scene for what's going to happen in the rest. Verses 1 and 2, it says, It was the time of Passover and the festival of unleavened bread, and the leading priests, the Sanhedrin, and the teachers of the religious law were still looking for an opportunity to capture Jesus secretly and kill him. But they decided not during the Passover because people may riot. Because again, Many did believe that this was the Messiah, and so it created a lot of drama for them because they were people pleasers at heart. That was a big problem they had. They were hypocrites, and they were trying to be something to somebody, but inwardly they were far from the Lord. So in the midst of this building tension and plot, we see there's like three main things going on in our section of text today, and they're all related, and they're all applicable for us to glean for and learn from. And the reason is, I want to remind us, as followers of Jesus, we're disciples. A disciple is a learner by definition. And so one of the ways in which we grow, one of the ways that we follow Jesus, one of the main ways that we're disciples is that we're constantly learning. We're constantly learning who God is and what, he, what that means for us. And we're constantly digging into God's word and and. and, and praying and hoping and figuring out what it means to us. And so I want to charge us this morning, whatever is going on in your life, right? Whatever you have to do today or tomorrow, let's endeavor right now to give our attention, not just to learn from it, but allow it to sink in deep into our heart. Amen? You with me? Okay. So there's three main things going on. We're going to walk through it. Number one, we see an example of devotion, verses three through nine. Number two is we see an act of betrayal, verses 10 through 21. And then thirdly, we see a call to remember, uh, verses 22 through 26. And so this this first thing we see here with this woman and Jesus is an example of devotion to Christ. And what we see here in the first few verses, verses three through nine of Mark 14, is the anointing of Jesus, By a woman with an expensive jar of perfume. We also can see this account in the Gospel of John. John 12, 1 through 8. Um, There's there's a same account, same writing of this account, told a bit differently. And in John's account, um, we know from this incident, this anointing, that this woman that's unnamed here is actually Mary, the Mary of Bethany, the sister of Lazarus and Martha. It's not Jesus' mother, Mary. It's a different one. But we know her name by John 12. And if you know the famous Mary and Martha story, it's not the same one. That's in Luke 10. That's also a great, you should go to Luke 10 and read about Mary and Martha. You want to be Mary, not Martha? That's just a quick sermon update for you right there. Um, 
That's not the story we're talking about, but it is the same person. Mary is the brother of Lazarus. Lazarus raised from the dead. Um, that's the Mary we see here anointing Jesus. And in what was one of the most tense times in all of history, right, for Jesus in Jerusalem, all that's going on leading up to the crucifixion, we see this solemn moment where this woman named Mary stops for a moment and honors her Jesus. In the midst of everything going on, and she was busy, and she could do all these things, there's this solemn moment we get here in verses 3 through 9 where this woman named Mary stops and honors Jesus. And she does it because she is a believer. She knows what's about to happen, and she has believed in him. She has trusted his word that he is going to die. And so what he's doing by anointing him is not only recognizing him as God, right? He's the, tr he's the king coming into Jerusalem. This is the Messiah. We need to honor him. We need to stop all that's happening. We need to anoint him with oil. And that was very customary to a king or someone with authority. Mary said we need to stop and do this. Not only that, but it was also culturally nor normal to prepare someone for death in this way. If someone was about to die, they would anoint them with oil. That was one of the last things that you would do to someone. And so simultaneously, Mary is declaring that Jesus is who he said he was in front of all the mockers and all the oppressors and everyone that did not believe this, this woman Mary stopped and she declared that he was God and he actually, she actually was preparing him for what was coming by anointing him as well. And in this moment of her anointing and honoring and preparing him, some in the room, even Jesus' own disciples, were not stoked with what was happening. They actually spoke up and they were really offended and angry that Mary would be wasting this expensive bottle of perfume on Jesus. And there's this whole interaction of, of kind of arguing and saying, why, why would you do this? Why, why, don't, you, um, why don't you give it to the poor? Give it to the poor? And what's interesting is that in Mark, we don't know which one of the disciples kind of says this. We don't get that. But in John chapter 12, we do. And guess who it is? Judas. Judas, which we'll see in a few minutes, the one that's going to betray, I'll give it away for a second, if you didn't already know, the one that's going to betray Jesus, he's caught up with how much this perfume costs. And he, the only reason why we know that this perfume is actually as much as a year's wage, so a lot of money, is that Judas is concerned about it. Judas is concerned what's being wasted in his mind by the anointing of Jesus. And they complain and they try to be spiritual and we could have used the money to give to the poor. And Jesus responds and he acknowledges Mary's deed. And he says that in the midst of the gospel going forth into all the world, this deed that Mary did to me will always be remembered. He marks it. As this, as this pure moment of worship and devotion that, that Mary does to him. And he says he's, it'll always be remembered. And in essence, bringing what is most valuable to you or to the world to Jesus and giving it to him because he's worth it is worship. That's what worship is. And I want to speak to that for a moment. When we worship, 
Literally, the word means to give worth to something. Worth-ship. It's worth worshiping. Right? The thing that I'm praising or talking about or singing about has so much worth and value that I'm going to praise it. By definition, worship is what Mary is doing in a very tangible, practical way. She's bringing what is most valuable in the world's eyes to her king, and she's saying, you are better. You're worth more than anything this world can offer, and I'm going to lay it at your feet because you're God. When we worship, whether that's musically like we just did, or when we do it in our lives, because if you didn't know, musical worship that happened on Sunday is not the only way that we can worship the Lord or should worship the Lord. Specifically, Romans 12, 1 and 2 would speak of a lifestyle of worship. We can and ought to worship Jesus with every aspect of our lives. And what I, I think is helpful when we are worshiping, whether it's musical worship, uh, you know, we're in a room, band's playing, that kind of thing, or you're in your car worshiping the music, or when you're just worshiping God with your life. The simplest thing to remember to help you, I think, keep your focus on why you're doing what you're doing and who you're doing it to, is that we worship Christ, we worship God, for who he is and what he has done. That's a, that's a really good way to, to remember why you're worshiping and who you're worshiping, right? Because we can get distracted, we can get off base, we can forget what it's about. But at the simplest form, worship is for who God is and what he has done for us. What I mean by that is first, because of his nature and his character and his goodness. Just because he's God, we worship him. Because he's the creator God that created everything and he's good. And he's awesome, and he's powerful, and he's majestic. But also because of the grace that we've received and what he's done for us. That we've been saved and set free and redeemed and regenerated, right? So I hope that's what we're thinking about. We should, when we're worshiping God, when we see like lyrics, God, you're good, you're a good, good father. Whatever, whatever the lyrics are you're singing in the car or on the screen. What you should be thinking about is, God, you are good, and I'm going to worship you now for who you are and what you've done for me. And it should well up. We should meditate and dwell and think about who God is and all the things he's done for us, and it will cause us to worship. Do you, do you, do you hear me? Do you get that? Amen. What is so telling of Mary's heart here is her pure and undivided devotion to Jesus. And this is what I mean by that. She worships him by anointing him with oil. And she isn't doing it for what she can get from him. She doesn't give him, anoint, you know, anoint him, and then Jesus, can I get something for that? She doesn't ask him something and then anoint him. There's nothing that she wants from him in that moment. And also, it's not because she's received anything from him at all. She is anointing or worshiping him because he's God. Just the fact that he's majestic and glorious and he's good, she's worshiping him. That's what she's doing. She's literally just being with Jesus, acknowledging him for who he is. And if there's anything that we can do is we need to learn from Mary here. Oh, what a lesson it is to learn how to love the Lord. 
See, the thing is, is our relationship with Jesus isn't supposed to be solely filled with what we can get or even how we can serve him. We make it about those things sometimes, right? When we pray, when we worship, we're always asking, God, I need this. God, give me this. That's not bad that we do that, but that's not at the core of why we worship. That's not the core of why we love the Lord. And also, sometimes I think those of us can think, well, if I serve the Lord, if I do stuff for the Lord, that's how I love him. Yes, that's, that's part of it. Yes, it's good to obey him. And yes, it's good to do things for him and serve him, sure. But at the core of it, the core is just being with Jesus in worship for all of eternity. That's like what we're going to be doing anyway. It's not going to be about what we can get from him or what he did for him. That's going to be in the past. We're going to be with him all of eternity. And you know why we're worshiping forever? Because he's that good. Like in his character, like who God is. The God of the Bible, Yahweh Elohim, studied a few weeks ago. Creator God, the God that sent his son to save humanity, that God in heaven We're going to be worshiping for eternity because just strictly out of his goodness. And we see here in a very tangible way, Mary is doing this. She's not worshiping God for what she can get from him or what he's even done for her, but just because of who God is. Amen? Secondly, we see... It's, it turns very abruptly. This sweet moment turns into an act of betrayal, verses 10 through 21. And what happens is, is that uh, it's Passover, and so it was traditionally, um, what you did was you had a Passover meal. And purposely, Jesus is trying, uh, they ask him, hey, Jesus, where do you want us to find the room? And he gives them very specific instructions to go find the room where they're going to celebrate the Passover meal. And he purposely made this night, this meal, as intimate as it could be. This, This room, this guest room in the upper room, kind of away from everybody, away from the crowds, a time where just him and his disciples could celebrate this intimate, close knit meal. We have to understand that back then, in in Middle Eastern culture, even still today, a meal, if you have a meal with someone, it's a very intimate, close-knit thing, way more than just like, let's go to Whole Foods after church. That's good. Go do that. Go have lunch there. But when you had a meal with someone in Middle Eastern culture, it it was showing that I know this person. I'm comfortable with this person. I'm going to, sh- a lot of times the dishes were just family style eating. And so you all ate together with your hands because it was a very close and a very intimate thing. And what happened here is that Jesus found this very secluded, intimate room to have the Passover meal. And the Passover meal uh, is called the Seder. Uh, the Seder still goes on. If you're a traditional Jew, you still would celebrate this, uh, the night of Passover. But the Seder is a, a meal. It's a tradition that uh, a community or your family or uh, close friends would do. And the meal would be a way of retelling the liberation of the children of Israel from, from Egypt, from Pharaoh in Exodus, it was a, the Seder was a way in which to remember tangibly what God had freed them from. And it actually comes from Exodus 13.8, this idea of having a meal, Passover meal, Passover Seder. 
Exodus 13, 8 says, you should tell your children on that day saying, it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. And so a command right after they were freed was that they would continue on remembering what God had done. I have a picture of like a traditional Seder meal. So there was six, di- there, there is uh, six different things on the plate as you're eating a Seder meal. And so this is a traditional Passover meal. This is the meal that Jesus and his disciples would have been eating that night. And every one of these six items at a traditional Seder has a symbolic meaning. There's a, there's a point. It doesn't just that they mix or pair well. That's not what's happening here. Every one of these, even like the bitter herbs were recalled uh, for the bitterness of slavery. The salt water remembered the tears shed under Egypt's oppression. The main course, the lamb, the lamb was this freshly sacrificed lamb that was pure and spotless that a household would, would get together. And this didn't symbolize anything connected to the agonies of Egypt, but rather it was the sin-bearing sacrifice the, that allowed the judgment of God to pass over the households in Egypt. That's where we get Passover. The Lord passed over the homes because the blood of the lamb was sprinkled on the doorposts. And so... This meal, as you sat down for a Passover Seder, you would go around and it was symbolic. You would, you would actually speak of, you wouldn't just chow down and go and you would actually speak to why you're eating. And let's remember this as we eat this. And it was a way to stop and remember what God had done for them. And so what's happening here, this is the Last Supper, this is the famous Last Supper that most of the world knows about. And the reason why most of the world knows about what's happening in Mark chapter 14 is because of the famous picture, right? Leonardo da Vinci's The Last Supper. What we're reading here today is what's depicted in this picture. They don't have a great Seder meal, honestly, though. Now that you know what's, that just looks like there's bread on the table. And I understand that this is just depicting communion in the Eucharist, which we're going to get to. But the Last Supper, Jesus and his disciples, what's happening just in a moment as they sit down for this Passover Seder is what's depicted in Leonardo da Vinci's The Last Supper. Okay, done with that. Done with the pictures. Thank you. In the midst of this wonderful meal, it's supposed to be a good meal, celebratory meal, an encouraging meal. In the midst of that, they sit down, they find the room, the tables are set, and the plot thickens. Jesus brings it up. He says, there is an unknown traitor among you. Think about this. You're at the meal. There's only 12 of you and Jesus. It's kind of tense already. And then Jesus says, one of you in here will betray me. And as the story goes, all of them ask each other, what? Me? Is it me? Is it me? One of them would betray their rabbi and our King Jesus. But what we need to know is that because meals were such an intimate thing, in Middle Eastern culture, like the ultimate desecration would be betraying a friend after eating a meal with them. It was literally regarded as the worst kind of treachery. And it's just about to happen right now. We all know the story, the disciple that betrays Jesus is Judas. You know, a lot of times you'd ask, why? And it would, be safe to, it would be safe to say that it was largely due to greed. 
the lure of silver and gold. I mean, even what we read about earlier, the dispute of the anointing, he was the only one caught up with the money. And we know where the story goes. He does betray Jesus. We'll see for a little bag of coins. Judas chose the passing pleasures of the world over King Jesus. If you break it all down, another time, another culture a long time ago, but in essence, at the root of it, he made the decision to choose the passing pleasures of the world over Christ. And by way of application, I'm not calling us Judases, okay? But if we really want to go deep and we want the Lord to allow us, allow our hearts to be searched, the question that I want to ask all of us, including myself, is, is there anything that we're willing to choose over Christ? Because that's what Judas did. And I know it was like a betrayal and Jesus died and I would never do that. But at the root of it was that he saw that money was more valuable than anything that Jesus had to offer or say. And now it comes really close to home because there is so much that we can be tempted with, right? The American dream and the stuff and the money. We can still want, choose, be tempted to choose money, stuff, fame, position, that job, that so-and-so, the list goes on, over Christ. And so as a way to check our hearts, we can't miss the point of this story is, is there, the question we need to ask Jesus is, Lord, is there anything in me that would want to choose something over you? And then it's up to us if he reveals that thing, do we not choose that thing and do we choose Christ? Good? Yeah. No problem. Um, and lastly, what we see here is at the same table, after this, after The call of the betrayer happens. Jesus calls them to remember. So in verses 22 through 26, during the Passover Seder, during the Passover meal, normally you would say something about each food, which I already said, what it meant and what it remembered in light of the Passover in Exodus. But Jesus does not do this. Jesus didn't give the normal explanation of the meaning of each of the foods on the plate. He reinterpreted them in himself. And the focus was no longer on the suffering of Israel and Egypt, but on the sin-bearing suffering of Jesus on their behalf. Do you see that? Again, it's sometimes hard to understand the significance of it because we're not a Jew 2,000 years ago in the room and in our culture and our ancestors and all that we had done every year. But if you can for a second, put yourself in their shoes. You can see the significance of what Jesus is doing. He's now referring to himself as the Lamb of God that would take away the sins of the world. No longer are we remembering the lamb that was slain in Egypt that took away this, that, that freed us from God's judgment. Now I am the perfect lamb, the son of God, that in a day's time is going to be killed and sacrificed and take the wrath of God so that you don't have to. This is what he's saying here. And no mere man can ever institute like this new covenant between God and man. The only one is Jesus here because he's the God man. 
He has the authority to establish this new covenant he speaks of, sealed with his own blood, even as the old covenant was sealed with blood in Exodus 24. He's making parallels. You know the, you know the Exodus, you know the Passover, you know the old covenant. I am the new covenant. By saying these things, Jesus was now connecting what God had done and what he's doing. And it would change history forever. He was using the traditional Passover story to connect the new Passover, which was him dying as the pure spotless lamb to take the judgment of God on himself for all of humanity. And the Last Supper, with these words, is where Jesus institutes communion. You may be familiar with it as the Eucharist or the bread in the cup, what we have over here every time, every Every Sunday. This is what Jesus is instituting here. And so when we take communion, it isn't just something that the church made up. It's something that Jesus told us to do. One commentator said it this way of what Jesus was saying. He said, this is the Passover of the Lord. With these words, the Jewish people celebrate the miraculous intervention of God when he brought the people out of Israel, out of slavery in Egypt, to a new freedom in the land flowing with milk and honey. And he's speaking of Jesus' words that he just spoke. With these words, Christians celebrate the new Passover, the death and resurrection of Jesus, which has liberated us from our slavery to sin and given us a new freedom, the freedom of the children of God. These two events are intimately connected. And he's talking about the old Passover and the new Passover, the old covenant and the new covenant. In Luke's account, in Luke 22 of this same Last Supper communion, we see Jesus add that as often as we do this, as often as we take the bread and the cup and we take communion, we are to do it in remembrance of him. Communion is about Jesus. Yes, it's a very uh, religious practice and tradition, but it's not supposed to be about the stuff. The, sp- the stuff is supposed to signify what Jesus did for us on the cross. And so he takes the bread and he says, anytime you do this, anytime you take the bread and you break it, that's my body that was broken for you. And anytime you take the cup, we don't have wine, we have juice, sorry. That's juice today. Anytime you take the bread and you take the juice, take the wine, and you drink it, that is remembering my blood that was spilt for you, that gave you new life. As often as you do it, do it in remembrance of me. Communion is a very special, very meaningful, Jesus-instituted practice that we as believers should do and do often. That's why we have it every single Sunday. And so in worship, in the context of worship, you can come before God on your own to take and remember what he did for you. And as you do it, it isn't just to do it to do it and your friend or your spouse got up and did it. When you do it, the point is to meditate upon what it means and say, God, your body was broken and your blood was spilt so that I can live. You took my sin and you gave me your life. And now before God, I'm made righteous and holy and you call me saint and you don't call me sinner anymore. 
That's what communion is. That's what it's for. And doesn't it remind you of the, the posture of Mary at the beginning of the text? That it just was all about Jesus. Didn't matter how much it cost. He was worth it. Didn't matter what was going on in Jerusalem. It was time to be with Jesus. And if there's a reminder that we can take from today, that it's all about Jesus. We can complicate the church and Christianity and what it's supposed to be. We're really good at that. We're really good about making this stuff about us and about other people and about things and stuff and buildings and whatever. But at the core, at the core of Christianity and our following of Jesus as disciples, it comes down to what we do at communion. When we, during worship, when we worship him with our lives and we take and we remember what he's done for us on the cross. Amen? Amen. The last verse I will read here, verse 26, it says that after all this, I love this because we're going into worship, it says they sang a hymn and they went to the Mount of Olives. We'll get to the Mount of Olives next week, that's the Garden of Gethsemane, but let's do that right now. Let's sing and worship to our God for who he is and what he's done, amen? Amen, amen. let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you that you, thank you for who you are and what you've done. To the end of our days, Lord, we want to we worship you. We want to be worshipers because of who you are and what you've done. You are so worthy of everything. As we sing these songs, as we declare your goodness, God, you're worthy of it all. You get all the credit. You get all the honor and all the glory. It's not about us. It's about you. And to your name be the glory. And so, God, as we, as, as we do spend a few songs of worship, we pray that our hearts, that you, would, that you would work out all the junk and all the stuff that's getting in the way, and that we'd be like Mary, and that we would, out of just wholehearted devotion, come before you and surrender everything and worship to you because you're good. And, Lord, as we do take communion together, as we do come forth and take the bread and take the cup, maybe for some of us we've done it every week or some of us have never done it, we ask, Lord, that it would be meaningful the way it's supposed to be meaningful, that we would remember Jesus and what you've done for us. So God, we don't want to miss out. We ask that you would just get all the praise and all the glory uh, that's deserving to your name right now. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen.